0: From Washington, D.C. and around the world. This is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Federal employees may still have the chance to opt out of the payroll tax deduction. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin called opting out, quote, a reasonable issue in testimony to the Senate Banking Committee Thursday. Mnuchin told Maryland Democratic Senator Chris Van Hollen he'd follow up with the Office of Management and Budget on the issue. The Office of Personnel Management is taking feedback on a draft list of qualifications candidates need for federal jobs. It's the next step in implementing an executive order President Trump signed in June to emphasize qualifications instead of just education and job experience. GovExec reports Acting OPM Director Michael Regas calls skills assessments the third and co-equal mode of establishing minimum qualification. Three big task orders at the Labor Department are the latest awards in the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract. A total of $805 million will go for network, data, voice, and web services. FedScoop reports Labor awarded all three task orders to Verizon. The latest entity to call for a coordinator for government-wide cybersecurity efforts is the Government Accountability Office. It's calling on Congress to establish a national cyber coordinator position in the White House. Nick Marinos is Director of Information Technology and Cybersecurity at the Government Accountability Office. Nick, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What did you look at? What was your charge here from Congress to examine regarding this position?
1: Well, Francis, there were essentially two goals to our report. The first was to provide Congress and the American people with uh, the ability to, to look at our report and get a better understanding of just how many agencies are involved in protecting our nation from cyber threats. And the second goal was to evaluate whether the federal government has a strategy, a national strategy for overcoming these cyber threats, and where do we stand in terms of implementing them. And that's really where the the issue of of having a clear leader to oversee the implementation of a strategy came to play.
0: I knew cyber lived a lot of places across the government from a government-wide perspective. I didn't know there were 23 uh, that you and your colleagues found, uh, entities responsible for enhancing the nation's cybersecurity. What does that say to you? Uh, What did that mean as far as your examination of some person or some office to coordinate all of those efforts, Nick?
1: well i think you just said it right there francis the reality is that it's a whole of government uh requirement you know cyber threats are affecting each of us the entire nation and so in order to be able to combat those threats we need the federal government to be able to coordinate within itself and with the private sector the uh, state and local governments um, to really overcome the issues and so as you point out we saw 23 federal entities that have responsibilities predominantly for helping to protect critical infrastructure these are things like our electricity grid, the financial services sector, the places where there's a nexus between the federal government and the private sector to keep our daily lives normal.
0: You write in this work, Nick, the White House's uh, September 2018 National Cyber Strategy and the National Security Council's accompanying June 2019 implementation plan detail the executive branch's approach to managing cybersecurity, but you point out that there are some parts of that that you did not find. What's lacking in your view in those two guiding documents?
1: So let me start off by saying where we think there are some good bones there. And most importantly, Below the leadership level, we did see identified roles and responsibilities for which federal agencies are responsible for implementing about 200 activities that support the national cyber strategy. However, where we saw them fall short were things like goals and timeframes, ways to measure progress, um, identifying what resources are ultimately needed to actually implement this plan. And I think that's also where central leadership is really important. Uh, We saw that the National Security Council staff have responsibility for coordinating with federal agencies however when we spoke with the national security council staff we were told that it's ultimately up to those federal entities to really measure where they are in terms of being successful in implementing activities that support the strategy
0: you recommend as i mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that congress should establish this position did you make recommendations about what that person or that office should do regarding the coordination among these 23 organizations or just that that person in office should exist
1: we did, as you point out, we did make a recommendation to Congress to consider legislation. Um, that recommendation uh, was was um, not specific in terms of the types of roles and responsibilities, but emphasized the importance of having reach across the federal government. So that would include influence over budgets. It would include influence over, again, that measurement to see how far along we've come in implementing the strategy. I think the important thing here is that The reality is that you look at even what we're living through today from a pandemic perspective, and it just shows how cyber threats are affecting even those other national uh, crises that we have. In order for us to be able to get to a vaccine or for tests to be effectively uh, provided and, and administered, you need systems to be well protected. And so in order to do that, we think it's important not only for this administration, but future administrations in perpetuity to have a central authority identified within the White House.
0: It is in the name of your organization, so I'm not surprised to see accountability as a factor in the work that you're doing. Uh, You and your team Right, remains unclear which official ultimately maintains responsibility not only for coordinating execution of the implementation plan, but also holding federal agencies accountable once activities are implemented. What kind of accountability, I guess, what's the carrot and stick, I suppose, that would be appropriate for that office, or is that not in the purvey of the work that you did, Nick?
1: Well, I think it's, it's endemic in other things that we've seen. So you, you pointed out last week uh, in talking about our, our report with Ari Schwartz, the, the reality that we have many dashboards already out there that are holding agencies accountable on things like IT modernization, so thinking about the Vatar scorecard, or even federal government security itself. You know, we've seen strides made by the Inspector General community, by the agencies themselves to measure the maturity of their information security programs. I think we're looking for something here as well. We, we think the strategy covers a lot of the issues that GAO has been identifying as part of what we consider to be a high risk area to government. For the, nearly the last two decades, we've been talking about cybersecurity as a major issue area. And we think that a central leader is, in, is essential to get to that accountability, to ultimately not only address what the strategy says today, but as we know, cyber threats are continually evolving, becoming more sophisticated. So that strategy and that implementation has to be updated on a continual basis.
0: We have about 30 seconds left. Nick, you also make a recommendation to the National Security Council. What's that recommendation?
1: Well, we we called for the National Security Council to basically fill those gaps that we identified uh, that are needed within the implementation plan. So ultimately, making sure there's clarity in terms of the targets and how we're going to measure progress towards those targets and identifying the resources that are going to be needed to overcome And ultimately implement this national strategy.
0: Nick Marinos of the Government Accountability Office, thank you very much for coming on. It's great to have you here.
1: Thanks very much, Francis.
0: Up next, making sure military efforts in the Arctic don't freeze. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how to stay ahead of competitors above the Bering Strait. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Ship traffic in Arctic waters is up 128% over the last 10 years. Russia's 54 icebreakers account for a lot of that traffic, and the United States doesn't have any polar icebreakers in the region right now. Bradley Bowman is senior director for the Center on Military and Political Power at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. He and his colleague, Major Scott Atkinson, are writing about the Arctic in defense news. Brad, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on the program. It's striking, as you and and, and, uh, Major Atkinson point out in this piece, that Russia and China are tremendously active in the Arctic, while the United States is trying to be but isn't able to be, basically because of a lack of hardware, is my takeaway. Is that a fair read on my part?
2: I think it is, sir. Thanks for the opportunity to join you. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, the, uh, the chair of our center at FDD, uh, H, uh, Lieutenant General Retired H.R. McMaster, often says we have to view the world not as we'd like it to be, but as it is. And that includes uh, viewing our rivals and competitors not as we want them to be, but as they are and as they're behaving. And when I look to the Arctic, I see very concerning uh, activity uh, by Moscow and increasingly also by Beijing. And I think Americans need to start with an understanding that if we're gonna compete successfully against Russia and China, that's not just gonna be in Europe, the Indo-Pacific, the Middle East, it's got to also be in the Arctic. Why? Why? Because America is an Arctic nation. Unlike China, we are an Arctic nation. That is our homeland. Part of our homeland is in the Arctic. We have important interests there. And uh, if uh, we ignore that region, while Russia and increasingly China are active, we're gonna become less and less safe
0: as a result. You uh, write in this piece to that point about uh, looking at the world as it is and not as we would like it to be, that um, the region will be experiencing ice-free summers over the next 15 to 30 years. What does that mean as far as accessibility for us? Uh, Our most important partner in this region, it strikes me, would be Canada, I imagine, and then also for our competitors, China and Russia.
2: No, I'm so glad you asked that, and you, you, you flagged a bit of it in your intro there. But uh, you know, we're seeing a 128 percent increase in, in vessel traffic north of the Bering Strait over the last decade. Uh, there, uh, I am not a, a climatologist or a meteorologist or anything like that, but uh, there, there are projections that we're going to see ice-free summers over the next 15 to 30 years. And so what that means is increased uh, commercial and military traffic, increased access to resources, and the Russians and Chinese doing more there. And when you consider that the Arctic provides an avenue of approach, or more directly, a line of attack against our homeland, that is not something we should be neutral about. And we see the Russians understanding this and putting their money where their mouth is. Uh, and uh, America, frankly, in many cases, not completely, but in many cases, kind of uh, uh, missing in action. And, and uh, you know, the, the, head, the head of our Coast Guard in the past has said, you know, if you want to be effective, you have to be present. And we are not nearly present enough in the Arctic.
0: The issue there primarily, as I mentioned a moment ago, is hardware. Um, yes. You write in this piece, Russia has 54 icebreakers. We don't. We don't have anywhere near that number. What's the right force structure, either Coast Guard or Navy or a combination thereof, in that part of the world in your view?
2: It's a great question. I would just give your, uh, your viewers one quick anecdote to kind of underscore Uh, the shortfall that the United States has in hardware. There's a Coast Guard Guard cutter Healy. It was America's sole medium polar icebreaker. It returned early uh, from its patrol this year due to a motor fire. And so currently, uh, with no forecast for a return to service, the U.S. is currently without without a single icebreaker to support the Arctic. So while the ice is decreasing, uh, big no surprise to your viewers, there's still a lot of ice there, particularly in the winter, And if you can't access a region because of ice, that's going to be a problem. I mean, it really comes down to we have to be able to detect threats, we have to be able to communicate, we have to be able to operate, and we have to be able to protect. Protect what? Protect our interests, protect our sovereignty, and protect potentially against attack. And if you don't have the infrastructure, the icebreakers, the the, the Arctic polar capable ships and submarines, you're not going to be able to do any of that. And that's why the number one unfunded priority uh, for uh, NORTHCOM is arctic communications because i'm a former uh uh, helicopter pilot i wouldn't uh, dare fly in some of these altitudes in the arctic but when you go far north you have atmospheric conditions that make communications very difficult and so you know i mentioned detecting communicating operating protecting the number one thing our our northcom commander says he needs the first thing he needs the next dollar spent on is arctic communications that should tell uh, your viewer something
0: uh, my apologies to your colleague, Major Adamson, for calling him Major Atkinson so far in our conversation. But uh, you and he write, uh, at closing this piece, Moscow and Beijing appreciate the importance of the Arctic and are taking action. Washington should, too. Who in Washington needs to do what? I assume that it's not just the Department of Defense and the Homeland Security Department as the Coast Guard. I imagine there is a congressional element of action required here, too
2: absolutely correct you know i mentioned a moment ago unfunded priorities you know the uh, the congress was wise enough to ask uh the indo-pacific uh, command uh, to provide a report uh this year that was received this year talking about what they most needed and that report kind of laid out very specifically what the commander there saw as the gap between what he needed and what he has um, I, I think it would make sense for congress to ask for the same thing from northern command Beyond the normal kind of unfunded priority list, kind of layout and detail report that would enable more effective congressional oversight, uh, an independent take from the Article One branch of government on you know what is uh, what is needed. I'm not suggesting anyone in the Pentagon or elsewhere is nefarious. and relying here. We have a real tension between you know America is a global power, we're Arctic power, we have interests around the world. Uh, you know we don't have enough resources to do everything. But uh, we're, we, as, as we argue in the piece, we're in danger of strategic insolvency uh, in, in the Arctic. And by that, I mean, there is such a gaping gap between what we should be doing and, and what we should have there and what we do that it's quite concerning. So a couple specifics, you specifics, know, looking at a deep water port in Nome, Alaska, right? I mean, that, that would be an important step. Senator Sullivan on the Armed Service Committee has, has rightly pushed for that. Um, looking to lease or accelerate acquisition of icebreakers. Uh, looking at other infrastructure that we might need uh, in uh, elsewhere in Alaska, in the Aleutians and so forth. These are some examples of some additional steps that could and should be taken without delay, in my view.
0: Bradley Bowman, thanks very much for joining me today. It's great to have you. Thank you, sir. Up next, diversifying the government through training straight ahead on Government Matters, the path forward for inclusive hiring. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. President Trump will prohibit agencies, contractors, and the military from using money for certain diversity training. Officials at the State Department say they are prioritizing diversity and inclusion in the department's hiring practices. Terry Girton's president and CEO of the National Academy of Public Administration. Terry, welcome back. Thanks very much for coming on. We have two issues at play here that both surround diversity and inclusion across government. And it's striking to me that we're talking about inclusion as an add-on to diversity because... I think that's maybe only been within the last three, four years. A lot of emphasis on diversity in government for a long time. The inclusion piece is relatively new, isn't it?
3: Well, it's, it's different language, certainly. But we know um, that the more diverse and inclusive your workplace is, the better your outcomes are. And so corporations have been working on this for a long time, and the government's beginning to get on the same train.
0: The State Department has had this problem for a long time. Uh, State Department officials talked about this at a hearing saying it's been since 1989 the Government Accountability Office has flagged this issue. What makes this hard for federal organizations, Terry?
3: Well, I think, you know, the State Department, like many agencies, has lots of policies and programs in place. But the challenge is you can't just judge the outcome by the number of policies and programs. You have to really measure um, the statistics and, and the effect. And so clearly what the State Department is seeing is that while they're getting more diverse uh, hires on the front end, they don't have the retention and promotion policies in place to ensure that they get those diverse that diverse population up to the senior ranks. And even their latest departure statistics show that their diverse employees are leaving the State Department at a much higher rate. So there's lots of processes that you have to put in place there to make sure that you're giving adequate training that you're deliberately making your selection and promotion panels themselves diverse, and that your leadership really practices and, and messages around diversity and inclusion. And sometimes, frankly, that includes providing um, training on equal opportunity and unconscious bias and some of the other things that, we, that we're seeing.
0: One of the things that I have been struck by in the military over the last several months is the military has decided that it's going to remove names and photos from promotion board Uh, exercises. Is that something that might make sense in a civilian organization, too, for better evaluation, for more objective evaluation of employee qualifications? Because one of the things you point out, State Department struggles not so much with bringing people in, but with keeping them moving through the ranks and and developing their careers.
3: Well, I will say I'm not an expert in um, the diversity and inclusion practices specifically, but I am Personally, a beneficiary of some affirmative action, right, in terms of in women in the military, and so I think there's a balance between complete um, anonymity and intentional outreach and advancement. And sometimes you have to have some knowledge about the um, demographics of your client, of your candidates, in order to make sure that you're um, actually diversifying the population. So, there, there's a trade off between complete anonymity and actually making some intentional actions to add diversity to the workforce.
0: Is it at least encouraging that, as the State Department officials testified at this hearing in the House, that the, the issue of whether a diverse and inclusive workforce is desirable seems to be a moot point? Everybody seems to agree now that that is the case, and, and we're talking about the way to get to that. Is that at least a win or is that not good enough, Terry?
3: I think it's the beginning. But what I worry about is that many times um, diversity inclusion becomes an HR problem. And diversity inclusion can't just be an HR problem and it can't just be an HR program. It has to be the leaders of the organization, not that HR folks aren't part of the leadership, but it has to be the very most senior leaders at every level of the organization talking the talk and walking the walk. And you can't just pitch it over the fence and say to the HR folks that this is their problem.
0: We just have about a minute left, and I mentioned the executive order at the beginning of our conversation, Terry. You mentioned something before we went on the air that that struck me that I hadn't considered before, and that is this EO applies to a lot of organizations that don't have anything to do with the government on first glance but have a lot to do with the government as you dig into it. Tell me more, Terry.
3: Yeah, I I think there are some um, administratively problematic issues to this EO in addition to some of the other concerns that folks have about it. When it says contractors, and you and I typically think of government service contractors, it is much broader than that because it goes to grantees and agencies have to review all of their grant programs. That means that state agencies and nonprofit organizations who are delivering frontline government services are gonna be impacted. And it also means that universities who receive research grants are going to be impacted. And so as these organizations who are already very deliberately working on diversity and inclusion in their client base and in their own workforce, review this executive order to the degree that they choose to opt out of future government contracts and grants, because they don't want to meet these training limitations, we could see significant impact in serve, um government service delivery, and also in the scientific research agenda.
0: Terry Girton, thanks very much as always. Great to have you back on the program.
3: it's always a pleasure to be here. Thank you.
0: If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available as an audio podcast now. You get it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn, or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. In tonight's event spotlight, this year's annual AUSA conference is going virtual. It includes four days of breaking Army news, seminars, and interactive virtual exhibits. You'll hear from the Secretary of Defense, the Secretary of the Army, the Army's Chief of Staff, the Sergeant Major, and a lot more. The conference happens October 13th through 16th. You can get more information at govmatters.tv slash events.